Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Janssens. Our guest today is Dmitry Dajimov, founder and CEO of Modern Treasury, a San Francisco-based company that builds payment operation systems. Dmitry founded Modern Treasury in 2018 alongside his co-founders, Matt Marcus and Sam Ahrens. Dmitry, Matt, and Sam met at Lending Home, formerly Kiavi, where they were responsible for building the payment operation system. In today's episode, we cover topics including Dimitri and Modern Treasury's Y Combinator journey, building a culture at a new company, Dimitri's outlook on real-time payments, some of the pros and cons of attending business school for prospective founders, and much, much more. Hi, Dimitri, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Thanks for having me. I'm calling in from uh, Sonoma, about an hour and a half north of San Francisco. Amazing. I know you're a West Coast guy at heart. We're happy to have you on the podcast. And for those of you who don't know you, can you give you a brief overview of your career to date and how you came to be involved in FinTech? Yeah, I grew up in Seattle, uh, went to college in the Bay Area and was really interested in joining uh, startups and working in product management at various, um, various early stage companies. And in 2015, I joined Lending Home, which is an online mortgage company, and ended up working there on the investor side of a marketplace that had a lot of money movements issues. And as we're building that, uh, that was kind of the inspiration behind starting Modern Treasury in 2018. And so in 2018, my co-founders, Sam Aarons, Matt Marcus, and myself went through what common and started Modern Treasury. Fantastic. And um, I know like my own mother, both your parents have backgrounds in computer science, I believe at Microsoft. So I'm curious, how do you think that's affected your career trajectory and kind of your desire to found a company in software or fintech? You know, it's interesting. I'm not sure that it affected my desire to start a company in software or fintech specifically, because in some ways, um, they try to force feed me coding and try to force feed computer science when I was a kid. And I was actually decently good at it, but I just didn't enjoy it very much. And I, ne- I never really wanted to, I didn't, didn't major in computer science or anything like that. But one thing that I do think it, I took away from that for sure is an interest in all things new and all things innovative. And from my perspective, I think when I was growing up, I was always, you know, there was a lot of tech talk around the dinner table. I'd always kind of hear about, you know, thinking back to it very, very sophisticated uh, conversations around around technology and business, even even as a as a little kid, and so I think that just sort of fed fed my interest in all things uh, surrounding innovation. And I think specifically, you know, when my parents started studying computer science, it was such a new and novel thing. Like clearly, their you know their parents didn't understand what they were doing, and I think my parents kind of brought that a little bit, which is you know if I was interested in something that they understood, they almost thought it was like not that interesting or not that innovative. So I never had any sort of fear about jumping into something completely new or, or a, new, a new kind of uh, industry or new category. And when I went to uh, Stanford and kind of moved to Silicon Valley and was surrounded by just people doing fascinating new things from like RFID tags to biochips to, you know, all sorts of things like that, I was just like very, you know, pouring kerosene a bonfire. Like I was just super excited about that. Um, so I think that it wasn't it wasn't the domain that they convinced me was worth kind of working in necessarily it was more just the attitude around uh around innovation and it's only later in life i realized you know how rare that is actually i think a lot of people tend to revert to kind of the tried and true and something they're very comfortable with and that was just never a thing in, in, in our household when i was growing up it's lovely to hear for those who are a little less familiar with modern treasury can you give a brief overview of modern treasury's kind of payment operations platform yeah Modern Treasury helps companies move money. That's that's the the short elevator pitch. Now, what does that actually mean? If you think about what's happening in the world of uh, technology, every payment is going to start and end in software, and that interface between 
uh, websites and software applications and mobile apps and the banking system uh, writ large. That's that's a very you know there's a lot of opportunity there, but there's also some challenges in that interface and how that all works very well. So um, modern treasury, you know, we build software for the companies that are stepping into that, and we build technology to initiate payments, to reconcile, to monitor and account for what happened on a on a product or a website that moved money. Um, and we help companies ledger subwalls. We help companies do KYC and compliance. So there's a number of different factors to this, but all of this is to make it the best platform for somebody to move money. I've also heard you say elsewhere that originally you were going to call the company uh, Turnkey Treasury. So how do you think you guys have grown into the name Modern Treasury? And are you uh, happy with the choice? Well, the funny story about Turnkey Treasury was that was the name under which we applied to, to Y Combinator. And um, we hadn't started the company yet officially or, or legally. And so we had a couple of weeks to kind of think about the name before we incorporated. And one of the things that we realized at some point was that a lot of times company founders get referred to as the um, name of the company. And so when you get into YC, like a lot of times people will say that these are, you know, these are the stripes, this is the Airbnbs, this is the, you know, and we didn't want to be the turnkeys because nobody would hear the N. We sound like the turkeys. Nobody understood what that was. And so we ended up coming up with the name Modern Treasury. The dot com was available for like 10 bucks. And so we ended up uh, we ended up going with that. So, you know, I think that I think it's a great name. I think that uh, first of all, it's hard to argue for anybody for it to have a non-modern treasury. Uh, so I think in a, in a lot of sales conversations, oftentimes it's sort of, well, this is like the right option. Uh, so th- I think that's, you know, in a way that, that makes for a good name. Um, I think it's also memorable. I think there's a little bit of a tension between treasury, which is temp- t- sounds like this old Victorian word for something that is relatively uh, relatively untouched by technology and making that modern is almost, there's like a, there's a inherent tension in the name. So I think it, I think it works. I, I certainly love the name. And it's great that you mentioned uh, kind of Y Combinator as well. So I know you went through Y Combinator in 2018. I'd love to any reflections you had on the Accelerator experience and how it's impacted the fintech that you've built at Modern Treasury. Well, I think I think startups are very hard. And I think that oftentimes you hear founders sort of say that, I feel, I feel like people oftentimes are at one or the other end, like either everything was super easy and it was kind of meant to be, or it was this, you know, staring into the abyss and eating glass all, t- all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely somewhere in the middle, but there's very, a lot of very difficult moments. And I think that having, you know, getting all the help that you can get, frankly, is, is, is the right path, I think, for most founders. So um, for us, you know, getting started in the very early days, YC was super helpful, both in providing structure and kind of making sure that we focus on the right things. Um, and, and, you know, specifically for us, uh, working with uh, partners like SVB, having having that YC association was certainly helpful. So I think for us, it was a very good experience. But uh, you know, companies built in lots of different ways. So uh, it's, it really has to be the right mindset for the founders to want to do that. Yeah. And definitely heard you discuss that uh, Modern Treasury required kind of an extremely fast build for kind of an infrastructure type thing due to the pace of Y Combinator. How do you think kind of prospective fintech founders could best prepare for Y Combinator or accelerators like that? Or is it just dive in at the deep end and figure it out? Well, I think one particular challenge for fintech founders is that uh, fintech founders tend to be maybe a little bit more worldly and they're kind of following the macro. And something that I've been noticing recently is talking to early stage founders who are really obsessed about what's happening in the venture uh, landscape or what's happening in the macro world and how is... And of course, all that matters. It's not like it doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter nearly as much as whether you have 
customers who will use your product and the product works and they're happy. And you have to be able to point to them. Everything good that happens to a company happens as a follow-up to that. And so, um, you know, why see Stagland of make something people want? Like that really is the most important thing. And that's kind of what you should be spending 99% of your time on. Um, and so I think that for fintech companies in particular, there's so much noise and there's so much that going on outside that I think people oftentimes tend to be almost predisposed to pay attention to because they understand finance and that there's something that attracts them to that. And so therefore they're super interested in what's happening to CPI, but like CPI is not going to affect your company, you know, or, you know, like that, that's not, that's not what's going to make or break your company or, you know, and there's lots of different versions of this. There can be more specific versions, but I think having like an accelerator experience or having, you know, advisors or having friends or whoever that basically just brings you focus is really important. And the focus has to be basically on two things, which is writing code and talking to users. So how do you make sure that you kind of keep doing that with, you know, the vast majority of your time? I'm excited to ask you about your views on TAM later. But um, moving on to kind of modern treasury and and what I think you describe as, as payment operations. Um, you've self-described modern treasury as a fintech best buy as to be kind of closer to Excel than to a bank. So I'd love to hear how you've seen this kind of category of payment operations grow in kind of the last four years since you've founded Modern Treasury? Payment operations wasn't really a category when we started. So it's been really fun to see that emerge as a category and having uh, companies in a lot of different geographies now try to build payment operations solutions for those geographies. We did a survey just recently um, of a lot of finance leaders at companies that are sort of in a you know, 500,000 person size. And one of the most fascinating learnings for us that came out of it was um, if you asked finance leaders how many different software systems they use in managing their own kind of finance and payment operations uh, issues, and the, the answer is 9.5, like the 9.5 systems, 9.5 things that they're logging in and out of. And this can be, uh, this can be Excel, this can be Google Sheets, this can be uh, you know, a bank portal, this can be bank portal number two, <laughs> this can be uh, accounting systems and, and ERPs and uh, billing systems and, and so on. And so I think that that has been really interesting. I think that nobody, I shouldn't say nobody, but, but p- few people thought of that as really a, a software product waiting to be built. And I think that has emerged as an understanding that you've seen a certain set of automation come and change the say marketing landscape. And there's all these MarTech companies, and we know that there's you know read rates on emails, and you can kind of feed that into Salesforce and all that sort of thing. And that doesn't really exist uh, as much in the finance realm. So I think there's some very obvious automation opportunities and kind of connection, but a lot of it comes from having. 9.5 systems on average that people are moving data from and logging in and uploading a CSV and handling some sort of integration. And, uh, and so, um, so that's, been, that's been very cool to see. You're pretty bullish on the um, kind of prospect of fintechs eating the world. So I know you, know you say not to pay too much attention to the macro environment, but kind of with the current bearish outlook on the economy, do you actually think that's going to accelerate or slow down companies' shift to more integrated finance? It changes a little bit what is the focus for the buyer? What is the focus for finance and product and technology leaders? Certainly efficiency, it becomes more important. This is a time when the finance team is you know, generally under pressure. They're focused on how do you make things more, more efficient. And so any technology that makes like existing processes more efficient is going to, in some ways, have an easier time getting adoption than in uh, maybe a little bit richer times when, when it hasn't been as much of an issue. Um, on the other side, you know, a lot of the things that embedded finance products and technologies uh, are bringing to market is really like it's the new 
entrance into uh, old school incumbent industry. And so, you know, I think some of those companies are going to probably have a little bit of a harder time getting going from, from scratch. I think like the earliest stage uh, kind of venture market is definitely a bit more challenging. But if you already have something going, in some ways, uh, the, the larger companies are even under even more pressure. And so almost, it all makes it, yes, it's, it's sort of tough for everybody, but it's like extra tough for, for the bigger companies and the more old school companies. And so I do think that if you're an incumbent, you almost have to invest in embedded finance and try to figure out how to build these technologies into your products to compete. And then if you're a new entrant, you know, now is your time to, to attack, if you will, uh, because you're going to have, you're going to have an easier time. So, um, I am pretty bullish. I think that technology kind of marches forward regardless of a little bit of the cycles, but certainly everybody's aware of that in their own business. Great. And I'd, uh, I'd love to move on to kind of partnerships and, and banks. So I know Silicon Valley Bank was your first partner bank in kind of 2018. How has Modern Treasury's relationship with banks like SVB evolved in the years since then? Uh, our partnership with Silicon Valley Bank started from our very first customer. So our first customer uh, that we were you know, selling our, our software to uh, was a company that was banking with SVB. We started building out the integrations with SVB and started to support other, other companies. You know, and I think it really has gone on in a lot of different directions. One of the wonderful things about banks like SVB is that they're really quite active in the innovation ecosystem in, a, in, in different angles. So uh, we work together with their kind of sales teams and relationship management teams to serve mutual clients. And that's something that has kind of grown and, and, and prospered over time. Um, we have formalized certain things of how we actually jointly kind of go to market. They have actually SCB Capital. Their investment arm has now become a, an investor in our latest round. And you know, there's a lot of marketing events, webinars, things like that that we, we do together. So it's all about serving customers for both of us. And I think we both, each of us, bring something to the table that that is beneficial to the customer. And that's kind of the basis of that relationship. It's lovely to hear. And uh, yeah, I think I was I was chatting to another guest recently about how, um, especially from the West Coast, there's much more of there's less of a zero sum mindset and more of a positive sum mindset, especially with incumbents and fintechs who can honestly help their customers do save a lot of time and efficiencies versus what might be happening today. I know Modern Treasury was an early champion in the real time payment space, um, adding support for RTP in 2019, I believe. Um, I know the US is pretty far away from kind of integrating RTP, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on RTP and what it could enable once it does arrive in the US more fully. RTP uh, and FedNow, which is the Federal Reserve's <coughs> version of real-time payments, is something that I think is has to happen in the US. I mean, t- as you pointed out, when you go to a lot of other countries, they have 24-7 instant settlement, and it's sort of just a fact of life. Now, when you think about what's happening in the US, there's sort of two primary options. You know, there's ACH, which is very cheap, but takes a while, doesn't work on the weekends. There's there's certain drawbacks to it. Uh, and it's a batch-based system. So from a technical perspective, you're you're sort of sending uh, a file maybe once a once a day. And then, you know, the mainframe systems uh, somewhere are basically processing them overnight. And so, you know, it's definitely not a not a modern system, but it works. It's very cheap and it's very ubiquitous and, and it's very uh, powerful in that sense. The other system is the credit card system, and the credit card system is also twenty four seven, and is you know a little, a little bit more expensive. Tends to be for smaller dollar ticket items, but is obviously very convenient for you know when you're going to stores. 
I think I think really what's happening is all these things have to become digital at the end of the day. Like your digital identity, like the plastic card doesn't matter as much. I mean, you're starting to use, you know, Apple Pay and things like that a lot more. That way that that settles behind the scenes uh, doesn't necessarily matter as much. You're not necessarily as aware of that. And I think that at the end of the day, what the question becomes, what is the technically like the best way to do it to settle kind of a payment between two parties? And if everybody's in one system, which RTP and the Fed are going to eventually kind of connect every single bank, then you can do a 24-7 instant settlement and we can like never talk about any of these issues again. <laughs> and so I think that there's a lot of reasons why the United States is a little bit slower than other countries. I mean, it's obviously a bigger country. There's a more complicated and diverse uh, banking sector than in most places. But, uh, but it's, you know, it's going to happen. Uh, we're supporting it. Uh, everything that kind of comes out, we're, we're adding support for and we believe there's going to be a big wave of, of change that comes. And, and again, going back to the 9.5 systems that kind of finance leaders use, like that, that's, a, that's an element of this that can get streamlined because if it's instant and it's reconciled automatically, there's no longer this issue of like overnight reconciliation or end of month reconciliation. You can actually provide everything in an instant basis. Uh, and in a way that, again, we think going back to the comment I made earlier about MarTech, like you don't really do month close for emails. Like, like nobody ever does like month close for click streams. Nobody does month close for how many people like bought a product from you uh, and click the button because you actually have the infrastructure underneath it to capture all analytics and to be able to show you that. So, um, so I think the technology exists and, and it's going to all build towards just a, a better way of running a business, kind of re- almost regardless of what business you're in. I'd love to talk to you about your uh, online presence because you're an extremely active and entertaining Twitter user. How do you balance your professional role as CEO, founder of Modern Treasury, and you know your personal uh, sense of humor with kind of ever-present access to social media? Well, I think uh, I find the world around me super interesting and 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 sometimes amusing, and and sometimes I want to point out things around that on Twitter. I have to make sure that I'm not, you know, putting the company in a in a, in a weird spot or something like that. But but you know, I just find I just find this journey to be super fascinating, and and the things that I uh, end up coming across that I just think are, are, are worth sharing. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, I've, I've done it for a long time. It's sort of just like second nature. So I'm not sure that I consciously think about balancing one versus the other. Uh, but I almost think that it's like part and parcel of the, of the journey of a founder is you're always learning new things. Like you're always trying to fire yourself from like jobs that you should, don't actually know how to do and try to bring in an expert who actually is going to be able to do it much better. Not only because they know how to do it, they, you know, they can focus on it, but also because they're just, they, they, they're focused on it uh, for a long time. And so I think as a founder, you kind of go through this chapter after chapter of like, okay, like now we're, you know, 10 people. Now we're 30 people. Now we're a hundred people. It's like, now we're, you know, we're worried about product or about engineering or about sales. And like, it just, it's super interesting, but, but as you're going through it, you just end up, uh, you know, hopefully learning a lot, but, but coming across things that are uh, maybe interesting for other people to, to hear as well. While I have you on air, I'd love to ask you if you'd like to uh, once again die on the hill that uh, calculating TAMs is an insult to your product team. I'm I'm happy to defend that statement uh, till the end of time. So I think you know here's here's what it kind of comes down to when you think about the most successful companies in the history of tech. Let's say uh, Apple, right? I mean, pretty hard to argue that Apple has been insanely successful in a lot of different sectors. And if you went back to basically any point in time, if you went back to 1975, I think is when they were founded, 
and you said, what's the microcomputer market? Like, whatever number you would have come up with, which has been completely irrelevant. And by the way, Apple sells that number of dollars in an hour, if not, probably not in that, like 10 minutes uh, today. And, you know, and then you said, oh, well, you know, actually, like, they also do some software. So they're going to sell some, you know, education software. So I'm going to add that to it. Uh, and then I'm going to add, you know, uh, graphics and design software and like all these things that the product team basically comes up with over and over again, uh, start expanding the team. So whatever team you came up with, either like two things are true. Either the team that you were about to go fund has never like will never come up with a new idea. And then you should absolutely not never fund them. Like there's no way, like if you can define a team, then you should absolutely not fund a, a team that is not creative and will never build anything new. Or you don't believe that, in which case you can't possibly have a TAM that that is that is an argument that makes sense. So you know, same thing. You know, think about uh, think about Amazon, right? Like, oh, like it's the largest bookstore on earth. I believe that they'll be able to build a bookstore. Like, oh, they just you know decided to sell DVDs. Like, what are your TAM like now? It's like, wait, you know, it's gonna grow. Oh, by the way, they just invented the Kindle phone or whatever. Like, you have to go figure out how the Fire Phone. You know, um, so I think those things that 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 argument uh, around TAM is always kind of funny to me because. It comes from, I think, an investment mindset of like, like I'm trying to understand the opportunity for a specific product, and a product can have a TAM, um, but the idea of a company or a team or a pro, you know, like, or, or it, it's just kind of funny to me. Amazing, I've, I've heard you uh, have that rant before, and I, and I honestly, I think it's it's super fascinating and, and very true to, to to many many degrees. Um, you know, continuing on social media, but on a on a slightly different topic, um, your reverse interview of. Ben and David from Acquired FM is a great listen, and I highly recommend it to anyone who is listening to this podcast right now. Um, but could you share a little bit to our listeners about your Coffee Break series at Modern Treasury and kind of any recent highlights that you've had? Yeah, we uh, when when COVID sort of hit us, <clears throat> we were all in San Francisco. We were, we were primarily all uh, in person and obviously went in, into lockdown and went, went virtual. Um, and I think we had an experience that not unlike a lot of other companies or organizations, which was that Zoom happy hours don't really work very well. So we had a few of these Zoom happy hours that, you know, were basically just terrible. <laughs> I mean, they they were not, they're they're very awkward. They weren't exactly how happy hours work. It's sort of like this lecture from one person to everybody, as opposed to like twos and threes and fours, kind of talking here and there. And I decided just on a whim to start inviting some of our uh, close friends and angel investors and customers to come and just share stories of what they're doing. And it became this weekly tradition called the coffee break. And so nowadays we have, we have a weekly coffee break. We try to bring somebody who we find interesting. It can be a customer. And I think bringing customers and hearing not a lot of, not a lot of, I think vendors ask their customers to come and tell the entire company about what they're building like that, I think builds a certain set of loyalty. Uh, we, we build, we have a lot of intellectual curiosity about these different businesses. So I think that's, that's all good. And oftentimes when there's a feature request that somebody asks, um, hopefully that fits into the context of what we already know they're building because somebody had seen a coffee break or uh, a guest or something like that. So that's, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is, uh, I mean, truly like anybody we find interesting. So Ben and David, being a great example, uh, we had a lot of loyal followers of the Acquired podcast and and listeners to that. And so uh, it was just super interesting to talk about the Acquired story. It was kind of funny because we said, we want to come and interview. And they're like, nobody's ever nobody's ever asked us to do that. Like, what, what, do, you, what do you mean you can interview us? Like, we do the interviewing. And we said, no, come, come, come and tell us about it. And that was the... Um, and they decided to record it. So that was ended up being the, the one the one coffee break that's been recorded uh, is something that they actually released as a, as an episode. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a wonderful thing. I think building culture in remote settings or in hybrid settings is very difficult. And that's been a big tool for us. It's, uh, 
it's fantastic and and certainly at startups I've seen that do it it's uh it gives you a much better understanding of, of kind of the world around you and the the companies or the people that you'll be interacting with um so we see a pretty wide range of non-MBA and MBA founders on the Wharton FinTech podcast. Um, you attended Harvard Business School and have even gone so far as to write a case for HBS or two cases for HBS, I believe. What do you think are some of the pros and cons of attending B School for aspiring FinTech entrepreneurs, operators, and investors? Uh, that's a wide question. I think that I'm going to say something kind of controversial. I'm going to say that it doesn't necessarily matter a whole ton. I think you learn a lot. I think the question really about going to business school and, and, and taking two years of your life for business school, uh, it becomes a question of sort of people put as opportunity costs. I think of it a little bit more as like, what is the learning alternative that you might have in those two years? And there's going to be certain rocket ship companies uh, and certain maybe founder experiences, things where you're absolutely going to learn you know, a ton, maybe, maybe more <clears throat> than, than in two years of sort of MBA instruction. That said, like those are two of my favorite years for, for me in my life. Like it's a really, it's a really interesting time. It's, it's very fun. It's like you end up meeting a lot of interesting people that become important people in your life or hopefully forever. Um, so it's a very high ROI activity. Um, and so, you know, I think sometimes people, what, what I, what I sometimes have an allergic reaction to, I think is when people think about the two years of an MBA is like the time to go start a company because they're like, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not actually working. It's like, you know, time where I can be free to go do and build something. And there's nothing really wrong with that, except that you're kind of do, you're going to do both of those things not very well. Um, like, it's really hard to imagine Steve Jobs starting Apple, but also going to class like a bunch. Like, it's just not, like, it's just it's very hard for me to imagine that working and vice versa. You know, I think that you hopefully, whether it's class, whether it's networking, whether it's like travels, whether it's writing a case or whatever it might be that you want to get out of the MBA experience, I think is you should kind of focus on. So um, I think that there's certain things that are part of the MBA curriculum that like can't hurt you as a founder. Like you, knowing, kn knowing how to read a balance sheet and an income statement is, a, is net net a good thing. Is that better than spending a year like learning about it, a new problem to go solve because you're in some company that has a problem? Like, I don't know. But <laughs> in, in, a, in a complete kind of without any... Um, uh, in a non-relative sense, it's definitely a good thing to do. Um, same thing with some of the other classes you end up doing. So, yeah, I, I think that I think that it's uh, it's a personal choice, and we want to just make sure you do is whatever you do, just do that a hundred percent. And it's building a company in particular is just such a it's already going to take all of your time. So the idea that you're going to do something else on top of it is hard to hard to stomach. I think one of the best advice I received from one of my mentors is just don't listen to anyone who says you definitely should or definitely shouldn't go to business school. And I think that uh, <laughs> vibes is what you just said. Um, so moving to kind of the closing part of the interview, um, if all goes according to plan, kind of what is your vision for modern treasury kind of coming down the next five years? We're trying to build a, you know, a big public company that is sort of the default software for a set of payment operations related activities. And, and you know, there's going to be, factors of our journey uh, around how international is it, how enterprise it is, things like that, that I think we, it's hard to predict, you know, what, what it's going to be in five years. But at the end of the day, we're trying to solve a problem that's not going to go away. Companies will always have the issues around how do they move money? How do they track it? How do they manage their business? How do they know about what's happening in their business? How do they keep a ledger of what's going on in, in their business. And so, you know, since the times of, you know, the, the Medici's or, or before, uh, this has been a factor of, of how businesses are run. And, and there hasn't been a lot of focus in trying to solve that in a holistic way. There's been a lot of focus on solving specific 
aspects of it. And that's where you end up with the 9.5 systems that everybody uses. But how do you build something that actually stitches all of that together? And when you start a company or start a platform, when you start a vertical SaaS company, how do you just have a, a product that you can sort of get started and really go focus on your business as opposed to the mechanics of it? So that's our vision for Mount Treasury. To quote you back to yourself, I know you told Peter Renton that you want to be the, the best software for anybody who's building a business that connects the web and the banking system, which is a, a very tall task indeed, and you guys are, are well on the way. Um, another question we'd love to ask kind of all our founders who come on here is, what are some of the hard-earned learnings that you'd like to share with other founders who might be uh, earlier on their journey than you in modern treasury? I think one thing that people talk about, they pay lip service to, but they don't necessarily focus on in a, in a real way is culture within companies. And I think in the 2010s, there's a lot of blitz scaling that was kind of the vogue of a lot of startups. And we've seen a lot of culture failures that were really around blitz scaling, being like, what happens when you grow really fast in a lot of geographies and, and sort of, you know, we don't need to go through all the case studies and examples of that. But that was something that I think in the early 2010s was really the focus. And then we kind of saw the, the result of it another end of it. I think COVID has had a really strange effect on this because on the one hand, things became a lot more transactional, right? Like a lot of companies in some ways have actually grown really quickly through COVID, especially in terms of headcount, but they almost reverted to a world where everybody's a contractor and everybody's just doing a job and you can just do things over Zoom and, you know, we can, we can log on once a week and you get, you get the assignment and sort of you do the job and like that's your relationship to work. And, you know, that works for some people. There's nothing really wrong with that um, on the face of it, if that's the kind of life, the professional life that you want to lead, and that's right for you. But I do think that you know, true innovation and true creativity comes from a small group of people that are very focused and are able to work closely and work with high intensity and, um, and a high degree of creativity and kind of back and forth. And the way to do that, I don't think uh, you can do that without really building a common culture for a company. And so whatever that might be, whether that's, you get together in some point in time, like do like things like team offsites, whether it's things like coffee breaks, which we talked about, whether it's things like, you know, the, the, whatever the Zoom open of two pizza teams is, you know, I think that that becomes really important. And I think we're going to see that we're seeing that to some degree. I think there's a lot of, you know, people have been talking about quiet quitting and this term of, of what happens when you sort of just log off and nobody, you know, nobody notices it. Basically, that's not anybody's picture of a thriving workplace. Like, and, you know, work is an important aspect of our lives. We spend a lot of time doing it. Uh, and so the idea that you can log off and nobody would notice is, you know, should give you pause about what it is you've been doing that, that the whole time. So I do think there's a really, I think it's really important for founders in particular, we're building, especially that first like 10, 20, 30 people in a company. How do you make sure that they're, they're going to be the core of the company as it grows? And like, how do you make sure that they feel close to each other? They have, they are you know, feel comfortable bringing interests outside of work. Like it's not entirely transactional. You can talk about things that are just like you find interesting, you find funny, you you went on a trip, you you had a bad day, somebody's sick. Like all those things are actually really important. And if you don't do that, then you end up in a world where you can quite quit and nobody cares. So I think that there's, I think as a for founders who are, you know, set on building a company for the long term with 50 plus, you know, employees or something like that, they have to, like, I think you have to think about it like way earlier than, than a lot of times people think about. They, they kind of catch themselves at being like 75, 100 people and saying, oh my God, like, what do we even stand for? How do we work together? And, and I think that you should start thinking about that a lot earlier. That's some, some fantastic advice for prospective founders. And 
Finally, last question. Um, we love to ask every guest just what they like to do outside of work. So how do you relax and keep saying outside of all the great work that you're doing at Modern Treasury? My refuge is outdoors. So I live in the West Coast, as you as you mentioned in the beginning. I love skiing, I love hiking, I love um, rafting, I love sea kayaking, camping, things like that. So that's that's I try to I don't get to do that as much as I want to, but that's definitely a big refuge for me. Fantastic. And I'm I'm sure it's helpful to unplug from uh from everything. Um it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. You know, we'd we'd love to have you around again sometime. And um to you and and all the team at Modern Treasury, we wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you love our show, please write a review or engage with us on social media. We greatly appreciate your support and it helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our FinTech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you'll be able to access interviews, articles, and much more analyzing all aspects of the FinTech industry. As always, a very special thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria. Until next time, your host, Andrew Janssens.